This morning we're going to talk about 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. I hope you're not too disappointed. We're not going to spend eight hours on these verses and talk about everything that I want to talk about eventually. We're just going to talk about faith because it is the thing that Peter in this passage assumes that his audience has. And I don't want to assume uh, much of anything about my audience except that y'all are happy to be here. At least I hope y'all are all happy to be here. Let's begin by reading this passage and then we're going to talk about a few things that Peter is telling us just by the words that he chooses to use in these verses. And then we're going to talk about the kind of faith that he assumes his audience has before he gets into the rest of the things that he is calling on the people in this letter to do. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, the apostle writes, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. So the first thing that I want to make note of is that Peter says, ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. That a person that adds all of these things to their faith will not be barren nor unfruitful. Now, this uh, carries echoes, if you will, of Jesus' teaching while he was on this earth. Jesus used a lot of figurative language to talk about the kinds of disciples he wanted to have and how the kingdom was going to be established and how it was going to function. And being fruitful is something that Jesus talked about in at least a couple of places. We're not going to read these verses from Luke 13 and John 15. I just want you to be aware of these things. In Luke 13, Jesus taught the parable of the barren fig tree, where he said that a tree that bears no fruit shall be cut down. In John 15, Jesus says of himself, I am the true vine, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Now, you'll remember that the scriptures that they had in the first century were just the Old Testament. They didn't have these, they didn't have the teachings of Jesus written down yet. They didn't have uh, all of the letters written down and distributed like we have today. They probably had uh, the letters of Paul in circulation in some form where the churches would share them with each other. And you probably had people that could write that would make copies of those letters so that they could be shared. But not everybody had a Bible in their pocket like we do today. But the teachings of Jesus would have been something that, or rather, so the teachings of Jesus would have been something that would have been repeated a lot. And people would have used uh, the parables of Jesus to teach. The uh, apostles certainly would have repeated those uh, parables and the following disciples would have repeated those parables. 
So being fruitful would have been something that the Christians of the day should have had on their minds. It would have been something that they would have thought about a lot. So a Christian that was concerned about being unfruitful would have paid special attention to these verses. Because there wasn't a ton of teaching about what it meant to be fruitful and what it might have looked like to be fruitful, somebody that would have been thinking, well, there's all this teaching that, from Jesus about being fruitful, about uh, doing the right things in our lives. What does that look like? How do I know if I'm being fruitful? Well, here's Peter saying, these things will make sure that you're fruitful. The next thing that I want to look at, the language that uh, Peter chooses to use, is the phrase, forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And this reminds me of the words of Jesus from Matthew 13, verse 22, when he's teaching the parable of the sower. He says, He that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. So I think that Peter is trying to remind the Christian, his audience uh, in this letter about that parable, remind them of this language. That somebody that doesn't add all of these things to their faith, that doesn't continue to grow in their spiritual journey as a Christian, they're going to forget about their sins. They might think about how they were baptized and their sins were washed away and Maybe they become arrogant about how I've been saved by Jesus, so now I'm a good person, and I don't have to worry about anything else. Well, Peter, apparently, is telling the Christians here that we do need to remember where we came from. We need to remember that we came from a place where we couldn't do anything to save ourselves, that there wasn't anything that we could have done that would have been accounted for as righteousness. You remember one of the old prophets, the scriptures that they would have had written down said that our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is nothing that the Jews or the people, uh, the people of God or the Gentiles or anybody else could have done that would have made them righteous. But Jesus had purged them from their old sins and if they didn't continue to grow in virtue and knowledge and in all these other things, then they would have forgotten that. And that was something that Peter... And through Peter, God did not want his people to forget. The last thing that I want to look at is that Peter says that by doing these things, we can make our calling and election sure. Now in this phrase, Peter is assuming some things. Some things that are contradictory to some of the more popular teachings out there in the world. Peter assumes that calling an election can be secured by our efforts. You know, there's a lot of churches, a lot of teachers out there that teach that there's, there remains nothing that people can do to be saved. That God has either picked you or he hasn't, and you don't get a say. Well, in these words, Peter is telling us that there is something that we can do. What's the point of telling you to make your calling and election sure if there's nothing you can do about it? If Peter is saying by make your calling and election sure just to 
study and make sure you're on God's list of saved people, there's not much of a point to that. In addition, Peter is assuming that one may fall. If you can make your calling and election sure, well then, you can throw your calling and election in the garbage. There's a lot of teachers and a lot of uh, churches out there that teach that once you're saved, you can never fall. Peter, in two different ways, says that that's not the case. He says you can make your calling and election sure, and he says if you do these things, ye shall never fall. What's the point of telling this audience that they can never fall if that's actually true? What if, what's the point in saying that if you do these things, you'll never fall if they're not going to fall in the first place? The last thing that I want to point out that I've already pointed out in a few, a few times is that Peter assumes his audience is faithful. And like I said, I don't want to assume that everybody here has already had their sins washed away, that nobody here is the subject of the gospel call of salvation. So this morning... We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the faith that Peter assumes his audience has. And I hope that by the end of this lesson, that you either count yourself among the faithful and are excited to learn some more about the kind of growth that Peter calls his audience to, or that you realize that you're not among the faithful and you would like to remedy that. We're going to talk about everything you need to know this morning to have the faith that Peter is talking about in this passage. I almost forgot one last thing that I wanted to talk about that I did forget to talk about when I gave this lesson in Stillwater. Peter lays out all these things as a progression. Add to your faith virtue and add to your virtue knowledge and add to your knowledge temperance and so on and so forth. But you know, you might be a person that was raised in the church, and so you have a lot of knowledge before you ever have faith. Now, we're trying to read out of one of these children's Bibles to Jace. He's getting to the age where he can start to memorize some things and repeat them back to us. And so we're trying to teach him some of these common Bible stories that children like to learn. And he, can, he could learn all of that children's Bible and memorize it and repeat it back to us, I'd be exceedingly impressed. But he could do that before he ever had faith. He could have a lot of knowledge. On the same hand, you could be a very good person. You could be a very virtuous person that does a lot of righteous things without ever having faith in Jesus. You know, There were a lot of Jews in the first century that were very righteous, that lived according to the law, that did their best to obey God, without having faith in Jesus. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, but you could be a person that finds temperance, or finds brotherly kindness, or even finds charity easier than having faith. So what I'm trying to say is that this progression might come in the wrong order for some people, or you might find it, it easier to do some of these things than others. I don't think that Peter is saying that you're not allowed to have knowledge before you have faith, that you're not allowed to have self-control before you have faith. He's just putting this in an order so that people in the first century that 
were looking for a way to grow would have an easy time of, hey, here's a blueprint. If, I, if I'm stuck, if I don't think I'm going the right direction in my spiritual journey, well, here's something that I can do. Here are some steps that I can take. Now, let us talk about faith. First of all, what is faith? You know, faith is a term today that a lot of people have a lot of ideas about already. Faith is kind of disdained as a childish mindset by a lot of people that consider themselves extremely intelligent or extremely educated. You know, they're too smart for faith. Faith is something that simple-minded people have because they can't understand the world the way that we do. Faith is seen as blind or lacking in foundational or anchoring facts. Faith is perceived as irrational, especially in the face of disproving facts. You know, there's a lot of atheists out there that can't understand how anybody believes the Bible when there's all this science out there that tells us about how old the earth is and uh, how life came to be or how life developed on this earth. But the scripture has a, lot of, uh, has a lot of things for us to consider when it comes to faith, a lot of things for us to think about. In one place, the scripture makes a statement, faith is, and go on, goes on to describe faith. That's Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, if that sounds confusing, I would understand because what it might seem to be saying is that by believing in something, we can make it true. That faith is the evidence of things not seen. That belief is the proof that something we can't see is real. I would understand you thinking about the scripture that way. But I might also understand if you'd think that that means this verse doesn't make any sense that this verse proves that the Bible doesn't have any meaning because certainly by believing that it is raining outside, we can't make it rain. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not saying that belief is so powerful that we can believe things into being. And he goes on, the writer of Hebrews, to illustrate what faith is. And he uses examples like Noah from verse 7 when he says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So what had Noah not seen that God warned him about? Did y'all know that there was a time when it did not rain on the earth. And Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 describes, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. This is what Noah had not seen. God says to Noah, It's going to rain so much 
So much water is going to fall from the sky that the earth is going to be covered up. So you need to do something else that nobody's ever seen. You need to build a vessel that's going to float on water. And it's going to be so big that you're going to be able to fit all of the different kinds of animals on this earth on that boat, on that vessel. And the Hebrew writer says that Noah did this deed by faith. So if faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, and it was faith that drove the building of the ark, then we can understand verse 1 to be saying that faith means living as if you have seen this thing you have faith in. Noah believed in something that he hadn't seen, but he acted as if he had. Otherwise, how would it be said that Noah had faith? There's a few more examples that we can look at that are uh, very visual. Those are the examples that I want to focus on this morning. We can look at Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 17 through 19 describe things that Abraham did by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he, should, which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. Now, I find it hard to imagine what it would be like to go somewhere that you haven't seen before. Because we have stuff like Google Earth today. Where you can, from the comfort of your home, on a relatively small screen see images from places all over the earth. You know, I've never been to Rome. I'd like to go to Rome one day and see things like the Colosseum. But I've seen pictures of the Colosseum, and I've seen images where somebody goes to Rome with a camera, and you can, as if you were there, see all around that spot. And you can move that camera to different places and see all over the city of Rome. Abraham didn't have Google Earth. Abraham probably didn't even know anybody that had even thought about leaving the place that they lived and going somewhere so far away that he needed to take all of his possessions with him. Yet God tells Abraham, start walking. And take everything you own with you. And he does it. You know, if he hadn't have done it, how would it be said that he had faith? Furthermore, in verses 17 through 19, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, That in Isaac thy seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now Abraham has never seen anybody rise from the dead. But the Hebrew writer says that's what Abraham believed. Abraham has been given Isaac at an old age. You know, that's something that's not written here, is that Abraham didn't expect God to give him a natural-born son by Sarah, period, much less in his old age. And yet here is Isaac, 
He's been born of Sarah in the flesh, naturally. And now God says, I want you to kill your son. I've spoken on that in great detail here in the past. You're getting the short version in these three verses. But Abraham does what God tells him to do. And he has faith that God is going to give him seed through Isaac, regardless of what happens. If Abraham hadn't offered his son to God, how would it be said that he had faith? Finally, we'll look at the siege of Jericho. There's a lot of other examples in Hebrews that we could look at, we could spend a lot more time on, but I just want to look at one last example before we move on. Verse 30 The writer says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. I don't know if y'all have read a lot of military history, but walls don't fall down just because you walk around them. The, The idea of a wall is it's supposed to make you walk around it and then not fall down. But that's what happened with the children of Israel at Jericho. I dare say that they had never seen a wall fall down just because somebody walked around it. But God told Joshua, take the people of Israel and march around the city. Do it in a certain way and the walls will fall down. And Joshua believed God, even though he had never seen a wall fall down just because somebody walked around it. And he did what God told him to do. Otherwise, how would it be said that the people of Israel had faith. So the faith spoken of by Scripture is, in a manner of speaking, blind. The world accuses us all of being blind idiots who can't see the truth because of our blind faith. Well, we haven't seen what we have faith in. That's true. But we act as if we have Just as God called on the men in these examples that we've read from this morning to do something, to have faith in something they had not seen, we are called to have faith in something that we have not seen, and it'll cost us a lot more than a son, than a life, than a city, if we don't act on it. So what's the message from Scripture that we are to have faith in? We could spend a lot of time digging in a lot of places to find what this faith is. I've already alluded to it a couple of times before. But I think it's really easy just to go to the next chapter. You know, you read all of these examples from Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Fame of Faith because of all of these people that have done all of these things by their faith. And the next words that the Hebrew writer pens are these. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the author of and finisher of our faith. That is to say that it is in Jesus and his message that we are to place our faith. 
So what was Jesus' message? Let us read the four Gospels. We won't spend (laughs) that much time uh, on it this morning, but I would encourage you to do that. We'll just look at the last of Jesus' Gospel of Mark, the message that was recorded by the Apostle Mark. In chapter 16, verses 15 through 16, Jesus is about to return to heaven after his crucifixion and resurrection. And he is teaching his apostles one last time what they need to do. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark wrote these words down. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The believers that act on their faith through baptism shall be saved. What are they to have faith in? The gospel. The word literally means the good news, and that good news is defined further in the apostles' writing but I think it's defined most concisely in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I apologize, I got a little bit ahead of my slides. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Paul is going to, in as few words as I think a man could do it, define the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. According to Paul, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the subsequent witness of his resurrected body. Therefore, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that modern faith is to be placed in. It is faith in these things that Peter assumes his audience has as he opens his second letter to the churches. And in future studies, we'll look at each of those things that he mentioned But for now, our study has come to an end. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.